0: Usus Domine, Deus, 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 is christian wagner and i'm the militant thomist so today we're going to be going over the sacrifice of the mass within uh saint thomas's work and then among a few of the commentators uh generally getting the thomistic tradition we're going to cover something that suarez said and something that Scotus said today too and then also i'll uh i'll drop a few good resources for if you guys are interested in protestant views of the sacrifice of the mass sorry my laptop wasn't plugged in so I wouldn't want that to run out of battery, but before we get started, remember to go to the links below, uh, become a patron at patreon.com slash Do you know all about that stuff, free stuff, articles, PDFs, everything, that and uh, a underrated benefit is the extra chats in the Discord, and you have... Um, you, you know I'm going to respond to any messages that you send me because I get a lot of DMs every day. I get a lot of emails and messengers and uh, whatever. I get a lot of stuff, and I can't answer all of them. But if, you, if you're if paying me money, then I'm kind of obliged to answer whatever question you have. So patreon.com slash for that, and you get to help me out to release more stuff, better quality stuff, buy better stuff, and uh, it, it just helps us both out. For only, uh, I think the minimum is just a dollar, uh, but I prefer if, uh, if you give me more than that. But uh, whatever you whatever you sew, see, that is uh, fit. So I think that is everything. Hello, goat. Oh, thanks, bud. So let us get right into it. This is going to be from Lagrange's reality that I'm going to be going over which is this book right here, but the quality isn't the best of this book. But I mean, it's, it's at least typeset because I think they just copy and pasted this website um, and then just put it in a book. There's a bunch of, a bunch of typos and stuff. It isn't, it isn't the best. Um, but this is the best we got um, unless I eventually decide to do a better version than this. Which is weird. Yep. yep. Definitely not a, not the best version. Okay, I'm going to make this really big. And this is some good... Uh, this is definitely fitting. I've been thinking about doing more Eucharistic stuff recently. Because there has been USCCB. They came out with their uh, Eucharistic Revival thing. So I think it would be fitting to, to to think more about the, to, the Eucharist. To uh, increase our Eucharistic Devotion. Uh, through study and through um, through going to Holy Hour and everything like that, definitely um, th- preparing uh, preparing ourselves more um, for the reception of the Eucharist. That may mean even um, going to mass going to mass more. Um, there needs to be a balance struck. Uh, I, I guess these are my my brief uh, reflections before we start. But definitely uh, the the Revival of daily mass is a great thing, but a lot of thinkers in the tradition have said to kind of cool your jets because going to mass every day and not being uh, well disposed to receive uh, definitely isn't a good thing. So make sure you live in such a way as if you could receive the Eucharist every day. Um, Make sure you frequently are going to confession, um, frequently making sure you 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 are well disposed to receive. and then this doesn't mean don't go to ma- daily Mass every day. This is just talking about reception. so if you if you do not feel like as if you're disposed to receive every day and you need to make sure you go to um, go to confession before, always always make sure you still go to mass either way and then just make an act of spiritual communion definitely make an act of spiritual communion. Uh this this doesn't mean to uh to not go to mass. It just means that you you need to be very careful about receiving and treating the Eucharist as if it's a light thing. This has been something which many thinkers have brought up um brought up before is to 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 make sure uh daily mass is a great thing but but cool your jets and don't don't uh, use it as an excuse to um receive when you're not well disposed to receive. So those are my brief thoughts about that, but let us get started. What is the essence of the sacrifice of the mass? This question was posed in one manner in the time of St. Thomas and in another manner after the appearance of Protestantism. Yet in his first, very first article, the Saint formulates the objection, which will be developed by Protestantism. So I actually, I'll just give it later because I think he's going to cover it later. In the 13th century the question was generally posed in these terms is christ immolated in the sacrament so immolated has to do with basically uh, if you a, a good resource for getting all of the the terminology about the sacrifice of the mass also, although he does um go a little bit extreme in some points but st robert bellarmine his on the sacrifice of the mass he he spends a lot of time uh, seeking definitions of immolation, of sacrifice, of uh, of, of what all of these, of, of unbloody, of bloody, of of modality, of everything he seeks. Uh, he, he definitely is very concerned about uh, defining terms. But immolation basically means destruction for, for a purpose. So it may be uh, you, you may have a sacrifice which is burnt. And then uh, in our case, we have a sacrifice which is um, eaten. So, and uh, or, or killed. That's, that's another way in which sacrifice could be, could be done. And the answer commonly given is that of Peter Lombard, which is based on the words of St. Augustine Christ was immolated once in himself, and yet he is daily immolated in the sacrament the words in the sacrament were explained as meaning he is immolated sacramentally not as on the cross physically okay, right now we have we we we're making some distinctions right now so first we're going to distinguish between the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and uh basically sacrifice in himself and then sacrifice in the sacrament one is once the other is daily and then the distinction that uh, the formal distinction between the two is that one is sacramental and the other is physical. So one is going to be found in the sacraments, and one is going to be sound, found in uh, in, uh, in physical flesh, not sacramental flesh. But what the heck does that mean? And that's what we're going to be um, getting into. Hence, in the Mass, there is an immolation, not a physical immolation. Now, how can, how does that work? How does that work? How do we have an immolation, which is referring to the destruction of something, without it being a physical immolation? Well, we'll find out. Of Christ's body. For that body is now glorified and impassable. But a sacramental immolation. How does that work? Sacramental immolation. This language had been familiar to the church fathers. It is repeated by Peter Lombard, by his commentators, notably by St. Bonaventure, Chad. St. Albert the Great, Giga Chad. So sad that St. Albert the Great doesn't have more translated works, like his summa and his commentary on the sentences. Very sad. The explanation of St. Thomas runs as follows. In two ways, this sacrament is the immolation of Christ. Okay, we're going to begin into it. First, because in the words of Augustine, we are accustomed to name an image by the name of the thing of which it is an image. Now, the sacrament, as said above, is an image of the Passion of Christ, which is was a true immolation. So it's a sacramental immolation because it's a... Oops, sorry. It's a sacramental immolation because it is an image of the physical immolation. That is how it's a sacramental immolation. And now, second, by efficient causality, because this sacrament makes us participators in the fruits of our Lord's Passion. So second, it is the instrument of bringing the fruits of that physical immolation to us. So those are the two ways in which it is an immolation. Now, we're going to be focusing on this first one a little bit more. On the nature of the sacramental immolation, the saint speaks thus. As on the cross, Christ's body and blood were separated physically, thus in the mass by the double consecration. This is going to be very important and not many people realize this. They are separated sacramentally. Thus, the substance of the bread having been changed into Christ's body and that of the wine into his blood. Christ is really present on the altar in the state of death, his blood being shed not physically, but sacramentally, even while by concomitance. So concomitance is going to be referring to the fact that when we receive the bread, we also receive um, not only the body of Christ, which is there um, by the power of the sacrament, but also we're going to be receiving the blood of Christ which is there by concomitance, because when you have uh, flesh, what comes along with flesh is blood. So it's not received by the power of the sacrament, but it's received as concomitants coming with it. Not uh, his blood being shed, not physically, but sacramentally, even while by concomitance his body is under the species of wine, his blood under the species of bread. So this is very important going back up here. You don't you you can't <clears throat> just skip over this. Is by double consecration. So notice, what is the immolation going to be on the cross? If we ask ourselves, what is that physical immolation? Well, it's going to be the destruction of Christ by the separation of his body and blood. So by the fact that he dies, that's going to be the immolation. So our Lord dying is the physical immolation. Now, what is the immolation and that separation in the sacrament? It's going to be the double consecration. Because notice what's happening in the double consecration. This is why it's so important that there is the double consecration in every Mass. If you don't have the double consecration, you don't have the consecration of bread, you don't have the consecration of wine, you actually have the sacrament, but you don't have the sacrifice, interestingly enough. So the double consecration, what it does is you have the body of Christ sacramentally consecrated, and then you have the blood separate from the body uh, sacramentally consecrated. So you have the body and blood of Christ consecrated and yet separate. This is the sacramental immolation because you have body and blood, which are separate, which is itself an immolation. So that is where the sacrifice of the mass is found when you have that moment of double consecration. So when the moment you have the, uh, the blood of Christ, and the body of Christ sacram- uh, consecrated separately, that is when you have the immolation. So that very, very, very important. When Protestantism denied that Mass is a true sacrifice, Catholic theologians, instead of asking, is Christ immolated in the sacrament, began to pose the question in this form: is the Mass a true sacrifice or only a memorial of the sacrifice of the cross? And I want to stop right here, real quick, because when Protestantism denied that the Mass is a true sacrifice, you're going to get your Lutheran, and your Anglican copers, and also uh some of your reformed copers, they're going to be coping and saying, well, ma- actually, we believe that the mass is a sacrifice of thanksgiving and we believe that the the mass is, is this and that. Yeah. 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 We uh, we understand the sacrifice of ourselves, sacrifice of thanksgiving. We we understand. But we're asking whether the mass is a true sacrifice. And if you want more information about what Protestant believe, former professor of mine wrote a really good piece on this of what the reforms would say about the um, there you go, what the reforms say about Eucharistic sacrifice. This is going to be from Zanke, who was an important reformer. And also uh, he draws from Vermigli. So this is going to be from the North American Anglican, and it's going to be Right there, there Calvinism and Eucharistic sacrifice. So, if you want to know about the Reformed view of Eucharistic sacrifice, just read there. That's a really good resource. Uh, he does a great job of of succinctly summarizing it. So, check that out if you want to know more about uh, what I'm. If if you had no one, if you had no um, idea what that uh, brief schizo rant was right there, where I said sacrifice of thanksgiving sacrifice of ourselves uh, then then you'll then then you'll find the four ways in which um, which the reformed are going to speak about Eucharistic sacrifice right in that article it's really good so you should read it okay so they began to pose the question in this form is the mass a true sacrifice or only a memorial of the sacrifice on the cross so but we must note here and and actually before I go it's interesting because when the Reformed posed this question, you'll have some thinkers like uh, Vermigli who are actually going to say that St. Thomas would say that that is the latter. That St. Thomas would say that it was only a memorial, the sacrifice on the cross. and wasn't a true sacrifice. So you had some Protestant thinkers who would say, no, 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 St. Thomas didn't think that the mass is a true sacrifice. But uh, now that we have a lot more resources when it comes to um, having a complete works of St. Thomas. We can see that this is uh, misled. If you're just reading his Summa, you can easily be misled into thinking that it's only a memorial. But if you read a sentence's commentary, it becomes clear that in his commentary on, on Hebrews. But we must note here that St. Thomas had anticipated the Protestant objection. He formulates it thus. Christ's immolation was made on the cross, whereon he delivered himself as offering and victim, an odor of sweetness unto God. But in the mystery of the Mass, Christ is not crucified, hence neither is he immolated. To this objection, he replies that although we do not have in the Mass a bloody immolation of the cross, so that would be that physical immolation that we talked about. I'm going to need to sneeze. Oh, that's the worst. Okay, it went away. So that's the physical immolation. We do have, by Christ's real presence, a real immolation, commemorative of that on the cross. So because Christ is really present, and because the bread and wine are really separated sacramentally, we still have what can be called a real immolation, although it isn't a bloody or physical immolation. So notice real and bloody or physical are not synonyms. You can have something which is real and it be sacramental and not necessarily physical. The objection itself, however, under various forms is reasserted as truth by Luther, by Calvin, by Zwingli. The last says Christ was slain only once and once only was his blood shed hence, he was offered in sacrifice only once. Let us notice the assumption which underlies this argument. Any true sacrifice includes essentially a physical immolation of the victim, whereas in the Mass, there can be no physical immolation of this body, which is now glorified and impassable. The Council of Trent, recalling the doctrine of the Fathers and of the theologians of the 13th century, notably St. Thomas, answers that the unbloody immolation, the sacramental immolation of the cross, is a true sacrifice. Is real physical immolation of a victim an essential element of sacrifice? In a bloody sacrifice, yes. But there can be, and is in the Mass, an unbloody sacramental immolation, which represents the bloody immolation of the cross and gives its fruits to us. This answer of St. Thomas is repeated by the great Thomas. Thus, Cajetan says, this unbloody mode under the species of bread and wine represents Sacrificially, Christ who was offered on the cross. Similarly, John of St. Thomas, the essence of the Eucharistic sacrifice consists in the consecration. Notice it consists in the consecration, that sacramental separation of bread and wine, of body and blood. Taken not absolutely, but as sacramentally and mystically, separative of the blood from the body. On the cross, the sacrifice consisted in the real and physical separation of Christ's bo- blood from his body. The action, therefore, which mystically and sacramentally separates that blood is the same sacrifice as that on the cross, differing therefrom only in its mode, which there was real and physical, and here is sacramental. The Carmelites of Salamanca teach the same doctrine. But they add a modification, which is not admitted by all Thomists, viz reception of the sacrament by the priest belongs to the essence of the sacrifice. So this, the Carmelites, they added, uh, unfortunately, they added something that not all Thomists uh, admit, which it makes sense because uh, what you have is, um, is usually when we speak of immolation, we're also going to speak of the destruction And this is something that Bellarmine actually also teaches, but uh, I would disagree with uh, Bellarmine and so with the majority of Thomas here. But not only they they would say, not only do you need the separation of body and blood, you also need the destruction. And the destruction is found through the the eating and drinking or the eating of the, the body and the drinking of the blood. So that's why they would say reception of the sacrament by the priest belongs to the essence of the sacrifice. Many other Thomists hold that the priest communion, which destroys not Christ's body, but only the Eucharistic species, belongs not to the essence, but only to the integrity of the sacrifice. So what does this mean? So because when we have the consumption of the Eucharistic species, we're consuming not Christ's body and not Christ's blood, but only the Eucharistic species. Well, the, not I didn't mean consume, I meant destroy. Okay. uh, destroys not Christ's body and doesn't destroy Christ's blood but only destroys the Eucharistic species this doesn't belong to the essence of the sacrifice but only to the integrity or the propriety of the sacrifice so there is that uh, the, the the consuming of the Eucharistic species is important not as important to the essence of the sacrifice but to the importance of the propriety or the integrity of the sacrifice because there's a certain signification which is important there because it signifies, it signifies a certain destruction. It doesn't essentially um, bring about the destruction of Christ's body and blood, but it signifies through the consumption and the destruction of the Eucharistic species. So it's going to better signify the sacrifice and it's going to bring about the integrity or the propriety of the sacrifice, not necessarily the essence of it. So it's only through the mode of signification, not through the mode of sacramental or um, or uh, essential bringing about but whatever may be the truth on this last point the salamoncans the salamonks since i can never say that i'm just gonna say salamoncans hold that this double consecration consists a true immolation not physical but sacramental so there's still agreement on that bossuet has the same doctrine and this thesis which seems to us the true expression of the thought of saint thomas is reproduced not only by the majority of living Thomists but also by other contemporary theologians. I think under this, you're going to get, um, if I remember correctly, Pole, who Pole was a, was a really good uh, Jesuit uh, who wrote a lot about the sacraments in his dogmatic theology. But if you read the Catholic encyclopedia article, the Catholic encyclopedia article, and this is really good too. It's just way too long and it doesn't cover the Thomas as well. So, um, I, I can't really cover that. But the Catholic Encyclopedia article, and this is written by Paul, and it's really, really good. So that's who I think he's talking about when it comes to. Let me check. Um, let's see. Dang. What in the world? Oh, um, Cardinal Billot and his followers, Tucker Oh, no, he doesn't list. Paul. Well, wait, I think Paul was, yeah, Paul was before Lagrange. Okay, let's get back. Yeah, so others, those are those. Some Thomas, however, under the influence, it seems, of Suarez. And you're going to notice, notice every time, every time the words under the influence of Suarez or like some Thomas influenced by Suarez or something like that. Um, comes up in one of Lagrange's works, you know it's going to be bad. It, it's not going to be good. Some Thomas, however, under the influence of Suarez, of it seems Suarez, wish to find in the double consecration a physical immolation. Come on, guys. Then, since they must recognize that only the substance of the bread and that of the wine undergo a real physical change, and that these are not the thing offered in sacrifice, they are led to admit, with Lessius, a virtual immolation of Christ's body. This virtual immolation is thus explained. In virtue of the words of the consecration, the body of Christ would be really and physically separated from his blood. Did it not remain united by concomitants? From the fact that Christ's body is now glorified and passable, this innovation is not a happy one. <laughs> we can say it's not happy. Because this virtual immolation is not, in fact, real and physical. It retains solely mystic and sacramental. So even having this like virtual immolation, it still doesn't do what you think it does. Just go back to what St. Thomas and the Thomas say. Come on now. Besides, what it would virtually renew would be the act by which Christ was put to death. But this act, says St. Thomas, was not a sacrifice, but a crime, which therefore is not to be renewed either physically or virtually the only immolation which we have in the mass therefore is the sacramental immolation the sacramental separation by the double consecration of his body of his blood from his body whereby his blood is shed sacramentally but is this sacramental immolation sufficient to make the mass a true sacrifice yes for two reasons first because exterior immolation And sacrifice of any kind is always in the order of sign, of signification. So you have to understand this. When it comes to exterior immolation, so external destruction placed before our eyes, um, in any case, it's going to be something which is going to be in the order of signification. It's going to be in the order of sign. And secondly, because the Eucharist is simultaneously sacrifice and sacrament. First then, so he's going to explain this first one. Even where there is no physical immolation, we can still have a true sacrifice if we have an equivalent immolation. Above all, if we have an immolation which is necessarily the sign, signification, the representation of a bloody immolation of the past. The reason is, as we have said, that exterior immolation is effective only so far as it is a sign, an expression of the interior immolation. Of the contrite and humbled heart, and that without this interior immolation, the exterior is valueless, it is like the sacra- uh, sacrifice of Cain, a mere shadow and show. The visible sacrifice, says St. Augustine, is the sacrament, the sacred sign of the invisible sacrifice. Even in the bloody sacrifice, the exterior immolation is required. Not as physical death, this condition is required to make the animal fit for eating, but as the sign of oblation, adoration, contrition, without which the slaughter of the animal has no religious meaning, no religious value. So notice, the exterior immolation, that is um, any sort of exterior destruction, it only has meaning, it only has any sort of value, if it is in the order of signification. That is, if it is the order of sign of ablation, a sign of adoration, a sign of contrition. So when it comes to exterior immolation, it's going to always be in the order of signification is in that order, same self, same order of signification when it comes to uh, the representation by means of the sacramental species. So that's why it's going to be sufficient for a true sacrifice. So let's say you have, for example, he brings up an animal. Let's say you're sacrificing an animal. If I, uh, we, we have chickens, we have chickens outside. If I just go outside, take, oh man, how, how do I not get uh, demonetized for this video, for this example? You know, what I probably wouldn't be. I go outside and I just take a chicken and then grab it by the neck and snap it, snap. And then uh, take it inside, pluck it, eat it. Is that a sacrifice? No, of course not. Only an idiot would say that's a sacrifice. But let's say I uh, I am deciding that I want to uh, apostatize and uh, have some other sort of sacrifice. So let's say, um, oh no, uh, let, let's say you'll have my neighbor who wants to sacrifice to Molech. So uh, my neighbor comes into my yard, and then picks up a chicken and says, "Like, oh molak, I have uh, uh, ablation, adoration, contrition, and blah 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 blah." And then takes the chicken and then whoosh, snaps the net. Is that a sacrifice? Yes, yes, that is a sacrifice. Well, why? Why is the one a sacrifice? One exterior is a sacrifice. Exterior sign is a sacrifice, and then one exterior sign isn't a sacrifice. We both that the essence is the same. There's a snapping of the neck, the, the physical death of the animal. That the, It's the same in both, both cases. And in both cases, we eat them. What, what is the difference there? Well, the difference mm-hmm. is because in one, there is no uh, signification of ablation, adoration, or contrition. There's no signification there. But in the case of my neighbor coming into the yard, taking the chicken and snapping its neck for the sake of Molech, there is that exterior signification of that interior um, uh, act of act of the will of ablation, adoration, or contrition. That is why one is a sacrifice and the other isn't. So when it comes to exterior immolation, um, in the order of signification, that, that is enough if it is related to the interior virtues. So the, this position granted, we see that the mass is a true sacrifice without being bloody in its mode. Even if the immolation is only sacramental, in the order of a sign signifying something that is now impossible, namely the physical separation of Christ's blood from his impassable body. Yet the sacramental immolation is the sign, is essentially the memorial and representative sign of the bloody immolation of Calvary, an effective sign which makes us shares in the fruits of that bloody immolation. Since the Eucharist contains the Christ who has suffered, Again, this immolation in the mass of the word made flesh, though it is only sacramental, is as sign, as expression of adoration, much more expressive than all the victims of the Old Testament. St. Augustine and St. Thomas demand only this sacramental immolation to make the mass a true sacrifice. Okay. So there you go. When it comes to exterior signification. Now that's second reason. And the second reason is going to be that it's a uh, sacrament sign. I'm going to check the the uh, live chat. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. This you have a dog? No. Ignore the barking. That's just my son. Always felt that concomitance was a cop out. Um, it, it makes sense. If when you're reading St. Thomas. Because what you have is there is some sort of intrinsic connection when it comes to the substance uh, of a thing. And then also the uh, various other um, accidents in which it is connected to. So like there's there's some sort of intrinsic connection between body and blood. Um, So by the power of the sacraments, the the body is here. But by the natural coming along with uh, everything else is present. So we, we receive while, while the by the power of the sacrament, the substance of body is here. By receiving the substance of body, there are some things that come along with the substance of body. And that's going to be um, substance of blood. Also, like the dimensive quantity and other things are going to naturally come along with it. Uh, Have you read the book by Francis Clark on Protestant views of the Eucharist? If so, any thoughts on it? I have not. Uh, Most of my reading on Eucharistology have been in primary sources, um, especially in the Reformed view. I'm not an expert on Lutheranism by any means. Really, um, I've done a lot, a lot, a lot of reading when it comes to the Reformed view of the Eucharist, uh, but when it comes to uh, other Protestant views of the Eucharist, I have not. So if you have any questions about the Reformed view of the Eucharist, I'm sure I might be able to help. But uh, and like, if you want to ask about the Lutherans, honestly, honestly, guys, let, let's be honest here. The Lutherans have no idea what the Lutherans believe about the Eucharist. It's like asking, honestly, <laughs> the, <laughs> I, I love to make this comparison because it's so true. And if any reformed people are watching, they're going to love that and make this comparison. So the the reformed are to the Lutherans as the Roman Catholics are to the Eastern Orthodox. I'm telling you, it's it's so true when it comes to the way in which our theology works. Because the the uh even even when you read Lutheran scholastic works, it just it's it's just mind bogglingly crazy. That's the only way to put it crazy. Uh, what are the main aspects of this that the reform would have objected? Uh, calling calling the sacrifice real, and it, and it just comes from it, it all comes. I think when it comes to the difference between a reform view and eucharistic sacrifice, and then a Thomistic view and eucharistic sacrifice, the real difference is going to be how we view the eucharistic presence. So we can call it a real sacrifice in the separation of the body and blood, because there is that um, there is that substantial presence. So because of that substantial presence, that's going to anchor us calling it a real sacrifice. Um, but but when it comes to the Reformed view in the Eucharist, they're not going to be able to be able to say there is that substantial separation of Christ's body and blood found in the double consecration. Although, like, I, I think like 75% of this, they're going to be able to be able to say, yeah, 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 I guess I kind of, I kind of agree um, to this. Now, when it comes to like the uh, like Bellarmine's view of the Eucharist, oh, they're going to they're going to f- flip their lid when it comes to Bellarmine's view of the Eucharist. But um, I, I think the reformed, in us, uh, at least like a lot of like the the classical, ref- actual classical reform, not like the the, the ma, ma classical reformed, like uh, like as like a sort of fad sort of thing that comes up. It's, I've seen I've noticed recently it's been a sort of fad, but. <clears throat> when you when you have a lot of um, a lot of what they say, they're going to be able to agree with a lot of a lot of what I'm saying here. But also, there's going to be things they disagree with. Oh yeah, I need to make sure I take that down. But I think the main difference is going to be how we conceive of the Eucharistic presence is going to change of how how we um, how we perceive of the Eucharistic sacrifice. I think that's going to be the fundamental anchor. At least that's what I'm getting. I'm open to people pointing out other things. But I think that's going to be the the foundational uh, difference between us. Okay. So, a second reason for this doctrine, as we stated above, lies in the character of the Eucharist as being simultaneously sacrament and sacrifice. Hence, we are not surprised that the exterior immolation involved should be not physical, but sacramental. But it does not follow that the Mass is a mere oblation. Mere oblation. St. Thomas writes, we have a sacrifice in the proper sense, only when something is done to the thing offered to God. As when animals were killed and burned or bread was broken and eaten and blessed. The very word gives us this meaning because sacrificium is used of man doing something sacred. But the word oblation is used directly of a thing which unchanged is offered to God. As when money or loaves are laid unchanged on the altar. Hence, though, every sacrifice is an oblation, not every oblation is a sacrifice. In the Mass, then, we have not a mere oblation, but a true sacrifice. Because the thing offered undergoes a change. The double transubstantiation, namely, which is the necessary prerequisite for the real presence, and the indispensable substratum of the sacramental immolation. Okay, now three. So when it comes when it comes here, uh the fact that it is the, the the mode of presence when it comes to the um the mode the mode wherein Christ is present here versus the mode wherein Christ is present on the cross is gonna change um necessarily the mode wherein they're sacrificed. Look, like I can I can even um like I, I think what what which is which is gonna be important here. And I think right here is actually going to highlight my point about how the reformers are going to disagree with how we conceive of the Eucharistic sacrifice. So I think everybody should, at least if explained, if if you explain um, it well enough to them are going to agree with the sacrifice in the mass. So even with your like really low church uh, Baptists, they're going to say, yeah, yeah. When it comes to the Eucharist, when it comes to uh, the mere, the mere uh, representative way in which, <clears throat> the way in which uh, Christ is present in the in in the bread and wine, they're going to say, okay, when we think of a sacrifice, this is merely going to be presenting an image before our eyes of the um, of of the sacrifice, all the way to us when there's that uh, where when we conceive of uh, our view of transubstantiation. We're going to conceive of the sacrifice in a completely different way, because we're going to conceive of a certain uh, substantial uh, uh, sacramental uh, separation of the body and blood, which is going to be the essence of our sacrifice, then everything in between. So I think uh, how you think of sacraments is how you're going to think of the Eucharistic sacrifice, because uh, we have to think about how there's that separation in the uh, among the bread and wine. So that is why um Uh, So really, we have to ground our view of the Eucharistic sacrifice on how we view substantial presence. You're going to have to ground it. So three, St. Thomas insists on another capital point of doctrine. The principal priest who actually offers the Mass is Christ himself, of whom the celebrant is but the instrumental minister, a minister who at the moment of consecration does not speak in his own name, nor even precisely in the name of the church, but the name of the Savior, always living to intercede for us. So this is important because throughout the Mass, you're going to get um, you're going to get a few um, the the priest acting in a few different roles. So, uh, for example, when he goes up and he preaches at the pulpit, he is actually speaking in the name of his bishop. That is who he's speaking in the name of. Um, at, at another point in the mass when he is praying prayers and you see the Orans position, the thing that all of the boomers try to do, but you're not supposed to do with, with the hand raised like that. When, when that happens, that is a um, actually a symbol that he is praying in the name of the church. So as representative of the church, he is praying in the name of the church when he does that. But at that very special moment of consecration, When he is consecrating the Eucharist, he's not speaking in the name of his bishop. He is not speaking in the name of the church. Rather, he is speaking in the name of Christ himself. So he, in a very real sense, becomes uh, in persona Christi, um, in the person of Christ. Let us hear some further texts of St. Thomas. The sacrament is so elevated that it must be accomplished by Christ in person. And again in the prayers of the mass. The priest indeed speaks in the person of the church. Which is the Eucharistic unity. So when he has the, the Orans position. He is speaking in the name of the church. Which all of you should not be doing. If any of you. prays in the position. I'm going to. Um, we, we are going to cyber bully. You. Uh, that's what we're going to do. Because that just destroys. That signif- that that glorious signification that the priest is speaking um, and praying in the name of the church. You are not a priest. You do not pray in the name of the church. But in the sacramental consecration, he speaks in the person of Christ, whom by power of ordination he represents. When he baptizes, he says, I baptize thee. When he absolves, he says, I absolve thee. But when he consecrates, he says not, I consecrate this bread, but this is my body. And when he says, i corpus meum, He does not say these words as mere historical statements, but as efficient formula which produces what it signifies, transubstantiation, namely, and the real presence. But in Christ himself, who by the voice and ministry of the celebrant performs this substantiating consecration, which is always valid, however personally unworthy the celebrant may be. It is sufficient to say that Christ offers each mass, not actually, but only virtually, by having instituted the sacrifice and commanded its renewal to the end of the world. Oh, this is a question. Is it then sufficient to say that Christ offers each mass, not actually, but only virtually, by having instituted the sacrifice and commanded its renewal to the end of the world? This doctrine, from the Thomistic uh, viewpoint, depreciates the role of Christ. So to say only, oh, yeah, Christ uh, offers each mass because uh, he instituted it. That's how he does, only virtually. But no, no, no. Christ himself, it is, who offers actually each Mass. Even if the priest, the instrumental minister, should be distracted and have at the moment only a virtual intention, Christ, the one high priest, the principal cause, wills actually here and now this transubstantiating consecration. And further, Christ's humanity, as conjoined to his divinity, is the principally uh, the physically instrumental cause of the twofold transsubstantiation it is in this sense that thomas together with the great majority of theologians understand the following words of council of trent in the two sacrifices there is one and the same victim one and the same priest who then on the cross offered himself and who now by the instrumentality of his priests offers himself anew the two sacrifices differing only in their mode Substantially, then, the sacrifice of the Mass does not differ from the sacrifice of the cross, since in each we have not only the same victim, but also the same priest, who does the actual offering, though the mode of the immolation differs, one being bloody and physical, the other non-bloody and sacramental. Hence, Christ's act of offering the Mass, while it is neither dolorous nor meritorious, since he is no longer viator, is still an act of uh, reparative adoration, of intercession, of thanksgiving. Is still the ever-loving action of his heart. Is still the soul of the sacrifice of the Mass. This view stands out clearly in the saints' commentaries on St. Paul, particularly in his insistence on Christ's ever-living intercession. Christ also now in heaven, says Gonet, prays in the true and proper sense by intercession, begging divine benefits for us. And his special act of intercession is the act by which, as chief priest of each mass, he intercedes for us. Thus, the interior oblation, always living in Christ's heart, is the very soul of the sacrifice of the mass. It arouses and binds to itself the interior oblation of the celebrant and of the faithful united to the celebrant. Such is beyond doubt the often repeated doctrine of St. Thomas and his school. So there is that we have to recognize and always recognize there, that there is that intrinsic connection between that oblation, which us as as laymen uniting ourselves and assisting at mass, and the priest in offering that and offering mass, and then Christ in offering mass. There is that intrinsic connection between our interior oblation and Christ's interior oblation, the exterior oblation in mode in, in signification of the species, in sacramental ablation, in, um, in, in, uh, in, in sacramental sacrifice, in the uh, double transubstantiation. There is, there is that intrinsic connection between us and the cross, which is found in the Eucharist. That is what binds us both to, to the great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, in his continuous and ever intercession in heaven, and then also his one sacrifice on the cross. It is in the sacrifice of the Mass that there is that intrinsic connection which happens. Each Mass finally has a value that is simply infinite. This position is defended by the great Thomas against Durandus and SCOTUS. Come on, SCOTUS. I honestly, I don't, I, I wanted to uh, take time to, uh, to find the section in SCOTUS and to read it, but I unfortunately did not have the time to explain why he is denying that the value of each mass is simply infinite. Seems a very weird thing to deny. This value arises from the sublimity both of the victim and of the chief priest, since substantially the sacrifice of mass is identified with that on the cross, though the mode of immolation is no longer bloody, but sacramental. The unworthiness of the human minister, however great cannot, says the Council of Trent, reduce this infinite value. Hence, one soul mass can be as profitable for 10,000 persons well disposed as it would be for one, just as the sun can as easily give light and warmth to 10,000 men as to one. Those who object have lost sight both of the objective infinity which belongs to the victim offered and of the personal infinity which belongs to the chief priest. Okay, that is all. Let me see if there's any questions. OK. Christian, uh, my brother was arguing with a Peter Lightheart acolyte who claimed Aquinas taught Calvin's doctrine in predestination, thoughts, reading resources. Well, um, the Peter Lightheart acolyte was arguing that because Aquinas did teach Calvin's doctrine in predestination. That's why. And it's very clear. Uh, so reading resources, uh, Lagrange's predestination, um, also Lagrange's providence, um, St. Thomas, um, in, uh, just, just his article 23 of Prima Pars in the Summa Theologiae. Uh, and then if you want to read more about, uh, Calvin's doctrine of predestination, Calvin has a doc, uh, treatise on predestination, although I don't really recommend, um, Calvin when it comes to finding out Calvin's view if you just want a just the normie reform view what you have to do is just go to the Westminster Confession of Faith and then also the the uh, Synod of Dort the the Canons of Dort if you read their sectional predestination election basically what you need to do is just read uh, the confessional documents which is going to be found in the Westminster Confession and the Canons of Dort read those sections on predestination and election and then read Saint Thomas Aquinas and Prima Pars question 23. Uh, that would just be a short little, it would take you like 30, 45 minutes. Just just read, just read those sections, compare and contrast. And basically, yeah, they, they agree. Uh, Saint Thomas did not deny free will, and neither did Calvin. The Latin Mass has the correct form. Really, the priest is offering the sacrifice for us to God, wherefore he faces the altar. The sacrifice not for the people, but on behalf of them for God. Exactly, exactly. When it comes to um, ad populum, ad populum just destroys. Um, and I mean, this is this isn't none of this is um, of the essence of the Mass. It's all for the propriety, um, the propriety of signification. Because when you what you do is every, when when you have the Mass. And you're placing before them, before the people, you're placing before them all of the various rituals of the mass that aren't essential. They're accidental to the right. They're all accidental to the right. You place before them all of these various signs, all of these various significations. while, While they are accidentals of the mass, you're teaching the theology of the church by the very actions of the priest. Which is why when you have the laymen do their little orange pose like the priest, that is horrible. It's terrible, and I will I will always um, cringe when I see it, because what you're doing is you're reducing the the teaching of the theology of the church. You're reducing the fact that the priest is up there as representative for the church um, and uh, supplicating to Christ. That that that's what you're having as as a um, as a participator in the in the soul intercession uh, of christ that 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 is what you're doing you're when you have um all of these various innovations to again to the accidentals of the mass to the non-essentials of the mass you're not teaching the theology of the church as well that's what you're doing which is why in a sense we can say that um the traditional latin mass um and and i would also say uh like the the ordinary masses that i go to they're very good or um Yeah, they they teach the theology of the church better because what they do is they place before our eyes um, the various um, aspects as significations of the theology of the church. That is that is why. So that's a really good point uh, when it comes to the uh, the the uh, the why ad populum is bad and out of orientum is is right. Okay, I don't see any more questions. I'll give you guys a minute, though, because I know it takes a minute for. Um, for YouTube to catch up to the live stream. So. You definitely, um, read Lagrange's reality. Uh, what I just read. Can I ask off topic? Yeah, go ahead. I can stay for a few more minutes. Yeah. Bellarmine's, um. And then also Kajitin in, uh, let me see. Let me try to find it. Where did I put that book? Where did I put that book? Uh, let's see. Up oh, there it is. While the the editor um, of this book kind of just like ruined everything, <clears throat> unfortunately, uh, Jared Wicks, S.J. Shock, imagine my shock! But uh, this right here, Cajetan responds a reader in Reformation Reformation controversy. Uh, this is a lot of uh, Saint Tom, uh, Saint Thomas, Saint Cajetan. Nope, not Saint Cajetan. Cardinal Cajetan. A lot of Cardinal Cajetans. Uh, writing against Luther and in there he has a treatise on the sacrifice of the mass that's really good Uh, and then uh, let me see there's one from the Thomistic uh, resourcement theories that's really good Thomistic resourcement remember the name of it dang it Oh, no. I can't find Aquinas on Transubstantiation. Uh, Where is it? Man, what in the world? Why isn't it popping up? This is annoying. There you go. Was I spelling? I'm an idiot. I was spelling Thomistic Resourceman uh, wrong. How how do I misspell that? I don't know why you guys trust me, to be honest. Okay. Oh, man. These are so good. The Thomistic resourcement Theories. I just want to spend all day reading all of these books. Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. Oh. I'm just looking at all of these books. Glorious. Is there not one from the... Okay, I think the guy's name is a really nice guy. Uh how do you spell Reginald Lynch? He's an amazing guy. No, these, he did the one on the instrumental causes and in the sacraments. What in the world? I thought he I, mean, I think he might have did his licensure on. Uh, dang. Is there not one on. Is there not one of the Thomistic Resourcement series or the Sacrifice of the Mass? This is annoying. Dang. Uh, is this it? What in the world? This is so annoying, man. I'm gonna. I could have swore there was one from the Thomistic Resourcement uh, series on the Sacrifice of the Mass. Dang, I'm so annoyed right now. I'm gonna harass somebody about this. So I could have sworn that there was. Oh, oh, is it this that I was thinking of? Yes, yes, this is what I was thinking of. Uh, Fine Gold. His work on. Um, his work on. Uh, that's not in the Thomistic Resources series, though, is it? That's who I was thinking of. Now I know. The Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion. Uh, It's kind of just an entire treatise. Oh, my gosh. The book is so expensive that uh, they ask about monthly payments when I open it up. Dang, dude. That's a rip. Okay. Well, at least I'll... At least I'll... uh, There you go. So, if if you're... uh, Okay, how should we interpret Romans 2.25 when circumcision is replaced by baptism? Okay, let me open up Romans 2 in my trusty, Dewey Reams. I've taken two classes on Romans. Those are two wonderful classes. I took one in undergrad, and then in grad school they had another class on Romans. And Okay. there you go Romans is wonderful okay so Romans 2 is in the general scope of Romans Romans 2 is part of those first three chapters of Romans that are kind of like you're bad you're terrible falling into sin blah 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 like everything like that that's what the first three chapters of Romans are doing So thou, therefore, that teachest another, teachest not thou thyself, thou that preachest that man should uh, not steal, stealest, thou that sayest men should not commit adultery, committest adultery, thou that abhorrest idols, committest sacrilege, thou that makest thy boast of the law, by transgression of the law, dishonorest God, for the name of God through you is blasphemed among the Gentiles, as it is written, circumcision profiteth indeed, if thou keep the law. But if thou be a transgressor of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Okay, so the what it means by circumcision profiteth. Notice this circumcision profiteth is going to be conditional. Because right after this, if thou keepest the law. Now, what is the law that is being spoken of here? Well, the law that is being spoken of here is the law of the Old Covenant. So if somebody is that perfect keeper of the old covenant law, the works of the law, so to speak, then circumcision may profit at them. But if thou be a transgressor of the law, that circumcision is made uncircumcision. So on the other case, if you have this other condition that is being a transgressor of the law, circumcision is made uncircumcision. That is false circumcision. And then it's important to get into uh, what 26 through 29 talks about. If then the uncircumcised keep the justices of the law, shall now uh, this uncircumcision be counted for circumcision and shall not that which by nature is uncircumcision. If it fulfil the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision are the transgressor of the law for it is not, he is uh, for it is not. He is a Jew who is so outwardly, nor is that circumcision, which is outwardly in the flesh, <clears throat> but he is a Jew that is one inwardly. And the circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of man, but of God. Okay. So what is going on in um, in all of chapter two? Because context is going to be very important here. So actually there's a heading. I didn't even know there was this heading. But the heading he gives here, in the Dewey Reams the Jews are censured who make their boast of the law and keep it not. He declares who are the true Jews. Okay, so what is happening here? The Jews are censured. So what is he doing? What is he doing? He's calling out hypocrisy. And we saw it from those, those I read those verses before for a reason. Because throughout all this, he's calling uh, calling out their hypocrisy. Um, again, here, um, art confident that thou thyself art a guide to guide of the blind. He to them in the darkness, instruct the foolish, teacher of infants, blah, 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 form of knowledge, teacher of the law. But they're breaking the law. While they, while they speak of those um, aspects of the law, such as circumcision that they boast in or national heritage or whatever, they, they, they transgress the law. So what Paul is asking here, well, who are the true keepers of the law? Who are the true keepers of the law? Those who keep the justices of the law, even though they're uncircumcised, or those who um, are circumcised, that is, keep those outward elements of the law, but they... They act against the law. What he's saying here is obviously the true circumcised, what what was very important in the Old Testament is that circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh. So the fact that there is that cutting off of the wickedness and evilness, which is found in the heart of man. There is that circumcision or cutting off of that. It'll, it'll say in the, um, I think it's in Deuteronomy, to circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. That That is, that is truly what's important with the fulfillment of the law. But the Jews, um, during the time, the perfidious Jews, they did not see that. They just boasted in the outward ceremonies and not in the true meaning of the law, which is the spirit of the law and not the letter of the law. So there you go. So I hope that helps. I don't see any comments. so I'm assuming that that helps. Because you bring up uh, Florence, where it says circumcision is mortally sinful, which is true. And then converted Jews should not circumcise, right? Correct. They shouldn't, because it's mortally sinful. But again, remember in context, he's speaking of a, of, um, he's speaking of a time in which uh, there was still the uh, because we when we talk about um, looking at the whole scope of sacred scripture, when it comes to the relationship of the of, of the old covenant and the new covenant, um, when, when it comes to the old covenant, there is that there's that inner period that happens between um, the crucifixion of Christ and then the destruction of the temple. Because b- before the destruction of the temple, there's still this intermixing. You, you still have Christians who are going to synagogue, Christians who um maybe circum they're, they're circumcising their kids, um, Christians who are practicing um some of the uh some of the elements of the law. There there's still that practice which is going on among um culturally Jewish Christians. Um and that is still um that is still okay. Uh, that is still allowed, um, but once there's the destruction of the temple, that is definitively since since the whole religious cult of the Jews is destroyed, that is definitively ended once and for all um, in, in the judgment of God against the perfidious Jews. Um, so, so you have to recognize that when there's statements like that, which is um, allowing or speaking as if people are being circumcised, you have you have Paul having. Um, Titus circumcised, was it Tim- Timothy circumcised, um, when, when you're having things like that, uh, that is definitely for um, the, it's definitely in in that little overlap period of the Old and New Covenant um, until the definitive destruction of the cultists of the Old Covenant. Okay, so I hope that was helpful. I do not see any more questions, so I will go. And remember, tomorrow is the Lord's Day, so go to Mass. Um, Make a good confession if you need to go to confession. Um, And make sure you have a great examination of conscience. Make sure your heart is prepared. Do not take the sacrament of a light thing. And then unite yourself to the sacrifice of Christ. And remember, it is Trinity Tide. So we worship one God in Trinity, in Trinity and unity.